You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hey everybody, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. This is going to be the Bee Buzz episode four today. we got a special guest with us. Who's in the studio today? The Phoebe Beekeeper. The Phoebe Beekeeper, folks, coming at you live. So, uh, Phoebes, what's new? Not too much. I'm on spring break. Happy to be here. What, what? Okay, right on. It's been way too long. Yeah, well, we've missed you, and you are receiving, at the last count, 417 emails a day trying to figure out where you are. People wow. are asking about Yeah, so uh, thanks for checking in with us. We appreciate that. Here I am. Here you are. Okay. Well, so everybody, again, as always, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I do appreciate you, and feel free to drop me an email, jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Uh, for those of you who might be new, when we're doing the Bee Buzz episodes, these are just kind of catching up on any kind of miscellaneous topic that is not directly tied to either an interview or a specific beekeeping subject. So today, uh, I'm going to pass. So today, I wanted to have Phoebe's on the line here today with us because. When we were talking last week, she came across an article that she really wanted to share with everybody. She thought it was kind of fascinating. There are some interesting points to it. I don't want to steal her thunder. So, Phoebes, what do you got for us? So, the article I found is called A Balm for Specialist Bees. And when I think of balm, I kind of think of like a lip balm, like it's protecting my lips. So, if you don't know what a specialist bee is, I wasn't familiar with it when I first read the article. But a specialist bee is a bee that only visits one type of host plant or a plant family to collect pollen. 
Um, some examples of this would be the Lasioglossum, the Andrina, and the Melitta bees. And so, yeah, they only use one type of flower to get the food source that they need. And about 20% of our native bees are specialist bees, actually. And there's only certain types of flowers that they can feed on. And with the growth of suburbs and monoculture of lawns, there's not as many of those plants. And we need to start planting more of those because the populations are going to start dying out if we don't have those. So some examples of the plants they could feed on are perennials, such as milkweeds and asters. Also, claytonia, violets, or even small shrubs and trees. And I think it's just a big part in the community that we can do for the bees because they need our help to get their food they need. So that's interesting. When you say that, I immediately think of right now, like at this time of year. And really, I mean, this has been going on probably since late February, maybe early March time frame here. The, one of the first things that we see in bloom is going to be dandelion. So using the example that you gave, and I, and I have no idea, I, I doubt that there is a, a species of bee that feeds exclusively on dandelion. But as an example, everybody in every neighborhood everywhere likes to kill dandelions. Like I'm the one neighbor that everybody hates because they drive past my yard and there's dandelions everywhere and all the little wildflowers mm-hmm. that I don't like to cut until I absolutely have to. That That's, you know, I in my mind, that's what I see as being like a specialist bee if there was one that fed off dandelion. Is that kind of what you're thinking as well? Yeah, so there's actually a type of flower that's in bloom right now. It's called the Spring Beauties or the Claytonia. And they're in bloom right now through June, but they don't stay in bloom as long because they are ephemeral plants. So that can really be kind of damaging to the bees because if they're not getting the right amount of food supply they need, then obviously they're not going to be successful. So they're not going to thrive. Yeah. Okay. Now when you say they're in bloom right now, what geographical area? Is this specific to our region here in the southeast in the mid-Atlantic kind of thing? Or where where all uh, is that in bloom? So it's mostly a southern thing. And like it kind of goes up into Virginia and Maryland a little bit, but not anywhere beyond that. Okay. So to kind of recap here, you have specialist bees that only feed on, you know, uh, a single or maybe even, or is it possible maybe a couple of different types? Or is it, is it really just one type of species of, uh, of flowering plant or so it's usually one to three types. And this is something that is not geographically unique to any area. Is this something that is pretty much, I mean, these specialist bees exist throughout the country, throughout the world? Are there any limitations that you're aware of as far as where we would find these bees? So this actually wasn't in the article. I had to look it up on my own. But um, the specialist bees are really only in North America. Okay, so with these specialist bees, so we recognize, I think a lot of people who've been beekeeping for a while are studying apiculture and and um, are involved in any capacity. They recognize there are some things going on. We've got some, you know, destruction of habitat, both, you know, well, well I mean, I, I shouldn't even say both. I mean, in all areas, whether it's rural or suburban or whatever. Like, I think when we talked the other day, you know, with Brian, he brought up some great points around how even when you're in a rural area, you're not getting that kind of biodiversity, right? You're getting, you know, one or two things because everybody's planting corn, everybody's planting soybean, and mm-hmm. that's you know just kind of what you're stuck with. So what's the call to action here? Like, what can we do as just citizens? If you say, look, I have no interest in beekeeping at all, but I'd kind of like to do my part. What can that person do to make a difference? So I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but what you can do is you can start planting more of the specialized plants that these bees need. So some examples would be claytonia and perennials, like milkweed and asters. 
And then also like some small types of shrubs and trees they can also feed on. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of what we can do to help them out. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's really cool. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. That was, uh, that's of all course. Right. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, I am going to jump into a couple other things here on this episode. One thing I wanted to mention kind of early on is I get a pretty steady flow of emails coming in with various questions and things. And one thing I wanted to say is when you send an email, if you don't want me to mention anything about you or where you're from or anything, just make a note inside the email that says, hey, please don't mention me or anything. In general, I might say something like, oh, yeah, I talked to, you know, Bill out in Oklahoma or something like that. I try to keep it as generic as possible. But if anybody's on, you know, witness protection or anything and needs to be, you know, uh, their, their identity needs to be safeguarded or anything, just let me know. Okay, so I'm going to get into one of the first questions here that's come up recently. And uh, it's actually it's a really good question. I don't know that I have had thought about it before, but I like, I like where this person was going. So they asked the question. They said, hey, you know, as far as water for bees, right, because obviously bees have to have a steady supply of water, would it make sense to maybe, like if you've given some supplemental feed, you have a, maybe a frame feeder or a top feeder inside the colony already, and there's a good nectar flow. You don't need to give them, you know, any more sugar syrup as an example. Would it make sense to go ahead and just start filling those frames with water so that the bees, you know, have a pretty good, you know, steady and available supply of water inside the colony? So I love where that thought process is, right? Trying to figure out creative ways to make sure that the bees have water. If you happen to check out YouTube at all, I posted a video just the other day, and I think I titled it, How to Water Your Honeybees. And I mean, I have done everything. I have put out nice little happy feeders with clean, fresh water that I empty every day. And I've tried so many things to give them a nice little watering hole. And it doesn't matter. Like, they will go find the dirtiest mud puddle or, you know, wherever they can find rain pooled on a leaf or wherever they can find it. They they will not go near my water. My neighbor came over once. I think I mentioned this before. And he's like, hey, your bees are in my swimming pool. But they will not go to the nice little drinking water supply. And I'm not saying that, you know, that's the case everywhere in the world. You know, you may put out a little water feeder and they may just love it and everything's going to be great. My general feeling on that is unless you're out in the desert somewhere, they're probably going to figure it out. They're, they're going to find ways to get water. Again, it's going to be condensation that's there first thing in the morning when they go out on leaves and things. They'll find a puddle. They'll find, you know, some way of tracking down some water. The concern that I had with putting water inside the colony really was more of like an algae kind of thing. You have this really warm area inside the colony, and it's dark. And I just thought there's got to be some kind of algae buildup in there, and I just didn't feel like that would be the best idea. So I advised not to go with that route. And uh, unless somebody has knowledge of or experience in doing that and saying, hey, it's really amazing and my bees seem to be thriving with it, I would say that's probably not going to be the best thing to do. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The next question that I had was around foundation. And specifically, it was the yellow colored foundation versus the black foundation. 
And we're talking more of like you're either you're a wooden frame, you know, with the black foundation, wooden frame with the yellow foundation, specifically for brood, you know, for your brood chambers. And the question was, hey, should I make sure that I'm always using dark brood frames when I, you know when they're going to be going into the brood chamber? And what I would tell you is the real kind of clear advantage to this is, you know, the egg or a larva, young larva, they're going to be that white kind of, you know, clearish milky kind of color, creamish color. And that stands out really well against a black background. So it makes it a little bit easier to find those eggs and young larvae against the, you know, the black background of the foundation. That being said, even if you're using a yellow foundation, and I, I included this also in the video when I did the splits for the VSH queens that I added to the apiary last week on April 1st, I showed a yellow frame where you can see on the corner of the frame where the foundation is yellow, but the cells themselves are actually really dark. And it doesn't take very long, you know, uh, within a season or two for it to start to really darken up. And then it gets to a point where you really can't tell the difference anyway. So as you heard me say many times before, use what you have and don't worry too much about it. You may have to tilt, you know, the frame a little bit and get a little more angle to it when you have that nice, fresh, brand new wax. But, you know, if you, if you need glasses, wear them. I mean, I'm at that point now where it's getting pretty obnoxious. I can't do anything without glasses anymore. So, you know, if you got to have glasses, bring your glasses with you. But outside of that, just use what you have. Another question that I had was for somebody who had a mouse that had gotten into a colony set up shop down there over the winter. And whether it was related or not, that colony ended up failing. But inside that hive, there were several frames of honey that were still available. They were just, it was capped honey in the colony. And the question was, hey, you know, I got this dead mouse that's been inside this hive and kind of tore things up a little bit. You know, what do you think about using that honey? Is that okay? Here's my position on this one. So, Bees are really good at cleaning up messes. Now, there are things that can be pretty nasty that, you know, you, you probably don't even want to get near them. Especially if it's anything dealing with, you know, like, foul brood, things like that, you know, you just burn that stuff, get rid of it, whatever. But in this kind of case, I'm not really aware of a lot of illness or disease or things that might be transmitted from a mouse to a bee. So if the mouse hasn't gotten up into the frame and the mouse hasn't done anything with that honey, I would definitely, absolutely, positively not harvest that honey for human consumption at all. But if you were establishing a new colony and you needed to have a frame of honey for them or you had a colony that was a little bit light at the end of the season and just needed a little bit extra, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't work. Uh, but again, if it's, you know, if it's face down in a bunch of muck and there's a lot of really, really gross things in there. You kind of use your judgment on that one, but I don't see any reason why it would be an issue. I'm just not aware of any illness that's going to be transferred from mouse to honeybee. Now on that, there is another video, I, I think I've mentioned it before, about how to make a really easy mouse guard with a piece of hardware cloth. That video is also on YouTube. It's just, you know, youtube.com slash C as in Charlie forward slash Sam Farms. So you can check that out. I actually, well, on that subject, I'm, I'm actually posting the podcasts on YouTube now as well. And that way, I've only got six episodes right now, just kind of as a feeler. But I heard something the other day where uh, some kind of statistic that a lot of people are using YouTube now to listen to podcasts, not just, you know, the ones that are videotaped, but the ones that are, are audio only. So I figured I'd throw some up there. And if it's uh, something people like, then great. If not, man, we can just ignore it and go on to something else. 
Okay, another thing that had come up is someone had asked a, a question around requeening and was looking for some suggestions on ways to do it in a safe way. There were some concerns around whether or not there was a, a queen that was still in the colony and they didn't want to get in a situation where they added a new queen and then that queen was rejected or killed by the other queen and they just really were kind of trying to figure out the best path forward on that. My recommendation on that one is probably, and if, and if you haven't seen any of these videos from this gentleman, uh, just do a search for the National Honey Show and look for Michael Palmer. Um, he actually talked about this in the episode that was from last year. And I think it was, you know, a year in the life of French Hill Apiary or something like that. It's about an hour-long video with Michael Palmer from last year. In the video, he does a great job of talking about using a push-in cage. And essentially what you do is you take some hardware cloth. And I would say that like the number four hardware cloth where you have like four squares per inch should be small enough. But take some hardware cloth and you'll make an area that's going to be like roughly, let's say, maybe eight inches by six inches, eight by eight, somewhere in there. And, and go to the section of frame where there's some available cells. And what I want you to do is you're going to bend the edges to be approximately maybe about an inch, three quarters of an inch high, and you'll make that square or rectangle. And what you're going to do is you'll put about half of it in and lift up the other half, and you're going to release the queen into that area, and then you'll close her in that cage on an actual frame that is inside the colony. And like I said, Michael Palmer shows this on that video. I'll try to capture it somewhere myself and get it on YouTube. That way it's something that people can use for reference purposes. But when you're requeening that way, it's great because the bees that are already inside the colony, they can feed the queen if they need to. They can interact with her. But if they have some hostility or they wanna, they're want to, they getting a little upset, you know, they can't really get to her to hurt her. She can always move out of the way. But the most important thing here is she's going to be inside that caged area and she's going to be able to start laying eggs. Now, there's a big difference between a virgin queen, a mated queen that is not laying, and a laying queen. A laying queen is going to be putting out the maximum amount of pheromone. She is, you know, in the eyes or of the pheromone senses, you know, the smell of the bees. She is absolutely in tip-top shape, ready to go. But just because a queen is made, it doesn't mean that the colony in and of itself is going to be super excited to have her there because she doesn't have all of her normal function taking place and laying those eggs is going to get her back in business. So if you have her in that cage and she's in there doing her thing and she's laying eggs, this allows you then to go back in three or four days and you can pull frames and start looking around. If you see eggs anywhere in that colony, outside of that caged in area, then you know there's still another queen in there somewhere. And then you got to track her down, right? So there's a couple ways you can do that. And I think, again, this is something that I've seen several beekeepers reference over the years. I've done it myself. But you create what's called a shaker box. You basically put a queen excluder on the bottom of a deep. And then you put that on top of wherever your bees are trying to go or where you're trying to get them back to. And you literally shake out every frame over the bottom of that queen excluder. So you, your, your queen and your drones aren't going to make it through. All your workers can go through. And then it gives you a chance to kind of better track down any queens that might be running around where they shouldn't be. But that's a great way to introduce the queen, minimize her risk, allow her to get back into the swing of things with laying eggs.
So the last thing that I have here on my list is, well, actually, I got two things here, but the last topic I wanted to discuss is, you know, I did my splits a little bit early this year. Uh, the timing, I I had made the commitment to get those VSH queens from uh, Wildflower Meadows in, and I had that set because I had so many things going on in the month of April. I didn't want to kind of deviate from that. I got really, really lucky because I think it was one or two nights before I split the colonies. The nighttime temps got down to, I think it was like 32, 33 one night and like 25 the next. So when you do a lot of splits and you're a little bit aggressive in the way that I that I did this, you know, early in the season and pulling four full frames off of every colony, you run the risk that there may not be quite enough bees, quite enough nurse bees on those frames to protect all the brood and the young larvae. So we dodged a little bit of a bullet there. All those splits were done. The video is, again, the video is on YouTube. It's about 23 minutes long, kind of walks through everything. But I'm keeping my fingers crossed that everything is good to go there. With Phoebe on spring break this week, we'll definitely be down there a little bit getting some work done. And we'll report back to you as to how everything is going with that. I want to send a, uh, a special Shout out to the 17 new subscribers on YouTube this week. Thank you very much. I think we're up to 125 now, so that's pretty exciting. So the last thing, the actual last thing that I have for you tonight is... uh, Don't say tonight. It might not be night where they are. True. Okay, so the actual last thing that I do have for you on this episode is if you think or know that you may have to do any supplemental feeding this year, I would encourage you to go ahead and start trying to track down some sugar now. Maybe go ahead and grab a few of the 25-pound bags. If you need to, you know, go through whatever process you might want to have to kind of consider long-term storage for them. Things are kind of getting harder to track down. I'm a little bit concerned because I generally do have to feed my bees a little bit. This will be the first full season that I'll have some in a 100% rural area. There is a ton of forage down there, and I've seen a lot of things pretty consistently throughout the summer, so I'm hoping that it's not a big deal for that, you know, for those bees. But if you think you're going to have to supplemental feed, I think it would be really, really in your best interest to try to track some things down. Prices are going up. I mean, inflation obviously isn't helping things, and uh, I really don't want anybody to be in a situation where there is a dearth and they're not able to get any kind of feed to their bees. So just kind of food for thought, something to kind of consider. And that's going to kind of wrap it up here. Phoebes, you got anything for us to close out the uh, the episode here? Not a whole lot. Just um, I don't know where I was going with that. Okay. That's solid. <laughs> solid. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution. <laughs> So, everybody, as always, thank you so much for listening. We do really appreciate you. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Feel free to hit me up whenever you have a question or if I can help out in any way. Have a great weekend, and we will definitely be in touch soon. We've got a couple of episodes already teed up and uh, some more excitement on the way. Take care, folks.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.